The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. If you would look with me at Exodus 20. And verse 1, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath To the Lord your God, on it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Tonight we are looking at the seventh commandment, which says you shall not commit adultery. Back in 1895, H.G. Wells wrote a classic Uh, called The Time Traveler. It became The Time Machine. And uh, since that time, many have fantasized about the possibilities of time travel. I think it's an unbiblical concept, but it's kind of fun. And and some Christian groups, especially uh, those that make videos for young children, like to bring the children back into Bible times with the time travel technique, something like that. They want to make it come alive. And so they bring 20th century kids uh, back into the days of Noah. I always wondered about the, to- the, uh, the language barrier, how they instantly could speak Hebrew or whatever it was, but uh, poetic license, I guess. Uh, but the kids e- immediately are brought back. The Holy Spirit gave them the ability to understand those languages. But um, I could play a game with myself tonight and imagine that God gave me the gift of time travel. And to think about the possibility of coming back to tonight when I had not committed adultery yet. And I still had my ministry. And I still had the respect of my children. And the love of my wife. And no dark secret to confess to the church. And what would I give to be able to come back to June 10th or 11th, 2004, to this day, tonight, and be able to do it all again and to do it differently? What would I pay for the privilege of a chance to do it again? And 
here I stand tonight, and I don't have anything to confess. God has been gracious and faithful to me over the 16 years of my marriage, and I have my ministry, and I have the respect of my children, and I have this chance. And many times I think about the cost of having to stand in front of you after having already stood in front of my family and confess the sin of adultery, and it's just too expensive. It's too devastatingly expensive. And if anybody thinks it isn't, all you have to do is read the life of King David and realize what would he have given to go back to that night when he walked out on the roof and saw Bathsheba bathing and said, no, no, we're not going to go there. We're not going to do that. And to turn around and go back inside and pray and ask God for strength in the day of testing and then do whatever God led him to do. Some have guessed it would be to put on his armor and go join the armies out and fight. Whatever it was, it sure wasn't what he did that night. Now, some have looked at the story of David and said, look how gracious God is. And God was gracious to David. And he gave us Psalm 32, which was read, Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not count against him in any way, and in whose spirit is no deceit. And so David really is a picture of the grace of God in action. But one preacher said, you know, it's, it's very easy to imitate David in his sin. It's not so easy to imitate David in his repentance. Because his repentance was a broken-hearted, genuine repentance to the core of his being that enabled him to write Psalm 51. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It is very difficult to be that broken, that devastated. To have Shimei, for example, showering him and pelting him with dirt and rocks and insults. And for him to say, God probably told him to do it. And to humble himself under that whole process when his son Absalom had risen in rebellion against him. As a direct fulfillment of the curse that Nathan had spoken against him. You did this thing in secret, but I'll do this in broad daylight in front of all of Israel. The sword will never depart from your house because of what you've done in putting Uriah to death. And so I play a game with myself sometimes and think... What would it be like to stand in front of my wife and in front of my children and confess the sin of adultery? And I'm glad I don't have to do that tonight. Now, a pastor has to kind of walk a line all the time, you know, and that's the difficulty here because it may be that I'm speaking to somebody who have, who has committed that sin and who wonders, is it possible that there can be grace and mercy and forgiveness? And if you're so loaded on one side, protecting God's people from the sin ahead of time, as you should as a pastor, if you're so loaded on that side, you're going to crush somebody on the other side who wonders, is there any possibility of restoration for me? Whereas if you load it on the other side with the grace and mercy and forgiveness, some sinful thought is going to be fertilized and bear its wicked fruit in somebody's life thinking, God will be gracious and forgiving so I can go ahead and proceed with the thing my lust wants to do. That's the nature of the human heart. We sin no matter what it is God wants to do. If he wants to restore you, if he wants to be merciful to you, if he wants to bring you back into good, healthy fellowship with you, with himself and with his church and with your wife or your husband and your children, he can do that. And he's done that again and again and again. He is a gracious God and very much able to cover sin and to restore people. And if it were not so, then who of us could stand before such a holy God? Who of us would have any hope whatsoever on Judgment Day? We would have none. But then on the other hand, uh, how much I yearn to protect myself and those I love, my church, my brothers and sisters in Christ, from the devastation that comes from breaking this commandment. And so I'm willing to 
load up a little bit on the warning ahead of time, as the scripture does, so that we do not sin in this way. And so I guess what I'm asking you to do is find in this message what you need. If you need grace and mercy and forgiveness, it's there through the genuine repentance that David went through in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 and through the blood shed by Jesus Christ on the cross. It's there for you. If, on the other hand, you're dallying with sin and thinking about a relationship or, or some pattern of lust in your life and thinking that it's acceptable, it's all right, then find conviction and warning and put on the breastplate of righteousness and hold up the shield of faith and fight the good fight of faith. Whatever you need to find, you alone know. But I'm praying that God will use this message. I don't remember actually our vows, what they were exactly. I think I could have looked at the video. Maybe you have them written down. Um, I don't know. But I went and uh, downloaded some vows that I used to marry a couple in our church. And I put my name in here. I hope you don't mind, even though they're not exactly ours. Do you, Andrew, take Christine to be your wedded wife? To live with her after God's ordinance in the holy estate of marriage? And do you promise before God and by his grace to love and comfort her? to exercise your headship as you submit to Christ, to protect and honor her, and forsaking all others, to keep yourself only for her, as long as you both shall live. And I said I do. I made that promise. And you know, God's going to hold me to it. And he's going to hold Christy to it because she made the same promise. You see, those words matter. And when I do premarital counseling, when I talk to people ahead of time, I say, you know, you're going to speak these words, and God is going to hold you to them. He's going to hold you to them. Interesting, um, a man that I respect and love, Reb Bradley, uh, does a great family ministry. And I enjoy his tapes. He's got a wonderful ministry uh, in restoring families and teaching and on parenting, and on marriage and many, many things. And we've enjoyed listening to his tapes. Before he was in the uh, ministry, uh, he was a professional photographer. And he photographed many weddings, among other things. Anyway, later on when he was in ministry, um, there was a picture of him on a poster in a church and he was coming to town and there was going to be a uh, marriage conference, etc. And uh, a man recognized him and gave him a call, tracked him down and gave him a call. And said, uh, I see that you're coming to my town and I, I wonder, you just look familiar, I wonder if it's possible that you may have photographed my wedding. He said, and they talked a little bit, found out some information and sure enough he said, yeah, I was there, I remember. And uh, so they, they reminisced and thought about that and, and then Reb Bradley asked him, he said, so how's it going? He said, well, it's not going very well. Really? Uh, no, uh, we're probably going to get a divorce. Um, Bradley, there was this long, awkward pause on the phone. And he said, you can't. <laughs> he said, well, what do you mean I can't? He said, you can't. I was there at the wedding and I heard what you said. I heard the promise you make and you can't. You know, I, I'm holding you to your promise. I was a witness. That's one of the reasons I was there and the other people that were there. I know they're all wearing fancy clothes and tuxedos and dresses and all that. But they were really there as witnesses to hear what you would say to each other. And uh, I'm telling you, you can't. Well, what do you want me to do? Work it out, he said. Work it out. And I said, well, how? And say, said, well, let's talk about it. And so they ended up getting together for counseling. And a year later, this man and his wife, fully restored in their marriage, gave a testimony at one of Reb Bradley's uh, marriage conferences about the power of God and his word to restore. And uh, this message tonight is not so much about divorce, but in the same way, I think Reb Bradley would stand over the shoulder of a man who's considering some kind of an illicit relationship, and he's going to say the same thing. You can't. You promised that you wouldn't. 
So don't do it. And how much more then are we not concerned with a brother like Reb Bradley, but about God himself, the Holy Spirit standing there and saying, you can't. Now, the foundation of this commandment is the sanctity of marriage. You see, these Ten Commandments are are boundaries, really, borders that we cannot cross. And when we cross there, we are transgressing. We're jumping a fence. And so God puts a, a boundary here around marriage as a sacred thing, just as he puts a boundary around human life in the previous commandment, you shall not murder. Uh, he puts a boundary there and says, this is not for you to, to, to jump this fence. You don't have the right to take a human life. It's not, it's not your decision to end a human life. That's up to me. And so he puts a, a, a barrier, a boundary around the, the sanctity of human life in the Sixth Commandment. And so also in the Seventh Commandment, he puts a, a, a barrier, a boundary around the sanctity of the marriage relationship. That's the foundation of this commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Now, what is adultery? Well, it's marital relations with any, uh, on the part of a married person with any uh, person who is not that they are not married to. That's what adultery strictly is. But uh, the more that the scripture unfolds the whole area of, of adultery, you can see that it's far deeper than simply that. Now, the sanctity of marriage uh, comes from Genesis chapter 2. Turn there, if you would, and look at Genesis 2 at familiar verses, verse 18 and following. The command, you shall not commit adultery, assumes, or at the center of it is, that God restricts sexual expression to the covenant relationship of marriage. And so what is commanded is... To directly, you shall not have sexual relations with anyone but your spouse, wife or husband. The foundation of that is in, in the, the origination of marriage. I feel that if Jesus were asked to teach on this, he would do what he did on the issue of divorce in Matthew 19. He would say, uh, from the beginning, it was not so. From the beginning, he would go back to the beginning of marriage. And, and for us to understand it, that's what we should do as well. So in Genesis 2.18, it says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable, suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. In verse 24, it says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And so the key concepts uh, concerning marriage are this. It's one man and one woman united by God. Thus Jesus says in Matthew 19, what God has joined together, let man not separate. They are united by God in a covenant relationship, uh, commitment uh, relationship, such that there are these titles, husband and wife, it says, it uses this uh, word wife. The man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And so there's a covenant relationship there of commitment. Now, the immediate purpose for this 
is the fulfillment of what we could call the cultural commission. It was the intention that God had that the human race should be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with God's image. God had ordained in a very wonderful and mysterious way um, the combination of body and spirit that each human being is in the image of God should be replicated or reproduced through a sexual union of male and female within the, the sanctity or the protection of marriage. And so at the beginning in Genesis 1, he said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them rule uh, over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So part of God's purpose for marriage was uh, procreation, namely that there would be children, there would be offspring, and through the children, the world would be filled with the image of God. Ultimately, as we've learned from Habakkuk, the world was to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Of course, sin disrupted that, and now the gospel's doing the work, you see. The world is filled with his image, but well, not with his knowledge. And so the gospel chases after the biological reproduction with spiritual reproduction so that the job can get done. And the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But God's original purpose was in marriage that there would be children. And so it says in Malachi 2.15, Has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit? They are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So that's at least in part. Now, that's not the only thing that God was doing with marriage. But we should not forget that that is a primary purpose. God is going to create eternal souls through marriages. Isn't that exciting? And so individual people who themselves can have an eternal relationship with God are coming up out of a marriage union. What an exciting thing. And now as we're getting as a culture more and more confused about what a marriage is or what it could be, and it's going to get ever more bizarre unless the salt becomes incredibly salty very soon. But it's going to get much more bizarre as our culture really doesn't know what marriage is. Have you noticed that? They just cannot define it. They're going to have a harder and harder time defining it. But we know that at least in part, God intended that we should be fruitful and multiply. And he wanted not just offspring, but he wanted godly offspring. He wanted children of the covenant, you could say, believing children. And so that was his purpose. Uh, And so he ordained that these children, uh, these people with whom he had been having a relationship before the foundation of the world should come in through certain parents who came together and got married. Isn't that exciting? So God has known you. He's known your name before the foundation of the world. It says in Ephesians 1 that we were chosen in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. It says in Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And so God set his love and his knowledge on specific individuals before the world uh, was even formed. This is the mystery of predestination and election. It's the mystery of the human race. And God ordained that those people with whom he had been having a relationship in his own mind should come into the world, should pop into the world by marriage, by procreation. 
The baby comes home from the hospital. God's been knowing that, that little boy or girl from before the foundation of the world. The parents get them for a little while. And it's a special thing. But it really is a relationship with God. And an eternal relationship it is once they come to faith in Christ. God ordained it through marriage. So that's his initial purpose. But there's also an ultimate spiritual purpose as well. And it's already hinted at here. But it has to do with the spiritual relationship between God and his church. Between Christ and the church. It says in Ephesians 1, uh, sorry, Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, says Paul. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. This is a very interesting thing, isn't it? The perfect union between a husband and wife is a picture in some mysterious way. He says it's a profound mystery. It's a mysterious way, a picture of Christ and the church. I think it's somewhat reflected in John 17 when Jesus prays that we may be one. I and you and you and me, maybe they be brought together in complete or perfect unity. And that's the ultimate picture. God and man, one together eternally. A perfect a union. In the end. And so that's the the picture. So immediately, there's what we call the cultural commission that the world would be filled with human beings. And uh, because of sin, there's a disruption, a separation of of the filling of the world with the image of God and the filling of the world with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The gospel is now doing that wonderful work as tribe after tribe, nation after nation, people after people are coming to faith in Christ. When that whole process is done then God will be perfectly one with his people eternally. So that's the big picture of marriage. So throughout the Bible, the intimate covenant relationship that God has with his people is likened to marriage. In Jeremiah 2, uh, verse 2 and 3, it says this, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert. Through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them. And in Isaiah 62 5, it says, As a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. And so there's this picture of marriage. Therefore, throughout Israel's history, whenever there was idolatry or wickedness or frankly sin in any way, in any way, it was seen to be adultery. It says this in in James chapter 3. Look at James for a moment and and you'll see that, that word. I'm sorry, James chapter 4 and verse 4. Actually, I want to begin at verse 1. It says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, James 4.4 says, You adulterous people... You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us 
envies intensely. That word means, really, it's epithumia, it means lust usually. But I, I read this, that the Holy Spirit has a holy yearning or deep desire as a husband would jealously over his wife for us. And you know what that tells me? It tells me that adultery is a subset of adultery. Namely, when, a, when a, a man is not satisfied with his wife or a wife not satisfied with her husband and roams and violates God's law, it's because she's not satisfied or he's not satisfied with God first. And therefore, David is going to say, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil. It's that the man or the woman was not satisfied with God first because God is the one who provided that spouse, you see. And so there are lots, therefore, of this kind of adultery. Coveting of any sort is a form of adultery. Materialism. Anything other than the kingdom is a form of adultery. But so also is this breaking of a marriage covenant. And that's why it's interesting in the Old Covenant, many times you can't tell if God's talking about the spiritual adultery, idolatry and all that, or an actual physical act done with temple prostitutes or whatever. I actually think it ended up being the same thing. When they were doing that, they were really committing adultery against God because they weren't satisfied with him anymore. They were throwing off uh, the normal relations with their, with their spouses and they were throwing off God himself. And so the real issue is what's going on inside your heart. Are you content with God? I was in a counseling situation some time ago and I spoke to a spouse and said, the reason you did this is you are no longer satisfied with Jesus. And I remember seeing the pain on that individual's face. It was very, very painful. And I was glad to see the pain because it meant that that mattered Okay, but I think that's the issue. All right, so we've already set the set the 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 parameters here. Now God established marriage, therefore, one man, one woman, united in a one flesh union for life. But then, shortly thereafter, there came some serious attacks on marriage, one after the other. And if you were to read through the book of Genesis, you would start to see that marriage is really the focal point of so much of the devil's attack. We see it right away in Genesis 3 when the serpent comes and tempts Eve. She suborns or supplants the husband's place, kind of becomes his head, as it were, kind of leading her, whereas the husband should have been leading. And so that's an attack on the marriage there. And it has an immediate effect on their marriage as their eyes are open and they're ashamed and they're hiding from each other. That's the first attack, just sin in general. But shortly thereafter, there's a more direct or kind of open attack in Genesis 4.19, the attack of bigamy. It says, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah and the name of the other was Zillah. Now, Lamech is an interesting guy, a son of or descendant of Cain, uh, really in that kind of wicked line. Uh, and he's an innovator. Uh, you, you get the, the image because of, of the statement here in Genesis 4.19 that this had never been done before. Up to that point, it was just monogamy. It was a man and a woman together. All right. But now, uh, all of a sudden, you have this man, Lamech, and he takes two wives uh, it isn't long after that that uh, we have a broader extension of this in Genesis 6. Now, Genesis 6 has a number of interpretations, but let me read it and then tell you the way I'm going to take it. It says, When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh, his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. 
and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of the name, it literally says. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, people have speculated at who these sons of God were. Some have thought that they were angels because this is the way that the term is used in the book of Job. And it's quite possible that angels had taken on somehow a human body. I don't know, and that's, that's possible. Another interpretation, and one that I favor, is that these sons of God were kings, important men, perhaps even in the line, the godly line of, of Seth. And they looked around, and there were lots of beautiful women. And what does it say? No longer is it bigamy, but now it's polygamy. It's, I'm going to take any woman that I choose, anyone that I want. They're all so good-looking. And so these men of power, men of the name, men of renown, are able to do what they want. So this would be a harem. You see what I'm saying? Where a king would take for himself any beautiful woman. And the idea of the one man, one woman for life is totally destroyed. And there's great wickedness in this. And God sees that the, that the wickedness in the heart is great and the flood comes shortly thereafter. 120 years, I believe. And so there's this idea. Now, I think today with the proliferation of pornography, Internet pornography, lust around us all the time, the same spirit is at work today, taking any woman that you choose. Now, not literally or physically, but there's this idea as though your wife isn't sufficient for you. Instead, I'm going to have a little of this and a little of that and a little of the other. God ordained one man and one woman for life. But you can see the attacks on marriage and it branches out. Shortly thereafter, there's the attack of homosexuality. In Genesis 19, in verse 4 through 7, it says, Before they lay down, the men of the city, men of Sodom, both young and old, all people to the last man, surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them, it says. Well, we know what that means, that we might have sexual relations with them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door, and said, I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. But this is an attack, homosexuality, an attack. Let's not be confused by the inclusive and open-minded and tolerant rhetoric of our day. Homosexuality is a great sin against God. There's no such thing as homosexual marriage. No such thing. It says in Le- Leviticus 18.22, Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. I don't know what could be unclear about that. I don't know what could be unclear. Or Leviticus 20.13, if a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. As Genesis continues to unfold, there's further attacks on marriage. In Genesis 34, Dinah is raped by uh, uh, one of the pagans in the area, Shechem, the son of Hamor, uh, the prince of the land. He sees that Dinah is attractive and he rapes her and takes her and wants to marry her. Uh, And that's an attack. And the outcome of that was the slaughter of that entire tribe by Simeon and the other brothers of Dinah. Uh, Then there's uh, the attack of prostitution. Uh, They say concerning Dinah, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? It's the first time the word appears in the Bible. Uh, means that the concept has already occurred, namely that a person would give um, sexual uh, intimacy for money. Uh, Again, a great attack on marriage. And so uh, there's the account of Judah and Tamar 
a very sordid account, and it ends up making it into Jesus' genealogy. By the way, it's remarkable the things that make it into Jesus' genealogy. Isn't it incredible to me? Lot and his, and his daughters, Moab, you know, and then Ruth the Moabitess, she makes it in. And it's a, it's a remarkable thing how the grace of God can cover all this sexual wickedness. And so God is a gracious God, but the attack of prostitution, the attack of adultery, as clearly is the focal point of our uh, study tonight. Deuteronomy 22.22, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, you shall purge the evil from Israel. And then after that, the attack of divorce. Uh, in Malachi 2.14 and following, it says, you ask, why is the Lord turning away from us? It is because the Lord is acting, this is interesting, as the witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. It's so moving as you read this. God acting as witness. It's not just Reb Bradley. It's God saying, I was there, and you spoke these words to me. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as with his garment. So guard yourself in spirit and do not break faith. And there's the attack of fornication or premarital sex. Deuteronomy 22, 13 through 21, give rules for dealing with a young woman who, once she's married, can give no evidence of her virginity. And so this is a, an attack. But Jesus, and we'll finish with this tonight, uh, spoke to the heart of the matter. And in Matthew chapter 5, he speaks of the attack of lust. So turn there, if you would, in your scripture. Matthew 5. <clears throat> In verse 27 and following. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So here Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, is pressing right to the heart of man. Just as he did with murder. You have heard that it was said you shall not murder, but I say that anyone who is angry with his brother is in danger of the fire of hell. So also does he do here with adultery. It may be that you Pharisees, you scribes, you teachers of the law have never actually committed adultery. But Jesus said, on the outside, you appear to men as righteous. But on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. Jesus saw right through them. He saw what was in their hearts. And so also he looks at the human race and he sees a seething cauldron of lust. And so this is the great sin inside our hearts. And you know, you get done with the Sermon on the Mount and you ask the question, who then can be saved? How can any of us be saved? Especially when Jesus finishes this very same chapter with, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so if the Ten Commandments weren't uh, sufficient for you to bring you on your knees to the cross of Jesus Christ, then how about Jesus' legal commentary on the Ten Commandments? And I've said before in witnessing situations, the opinion of some obscure district judge on some law doesn't matter much. It may... But the opinion of the judge is going to sit on your case concerning the law under which you're being tried. Now, that matters a lot. And Jesus 
has received or committed to, it's been committed to him, the judgment of all the earth because he is the son of man. He'll sit on your case. And so therefore, his opinion on the matter of adultery matters a lot. And it may not be enough that you have just not physically committed adultery. What about this matter of lust? And Jesus says, you've got to fight it with everything you have. If your eye caused you to sin, then gouge it out, throw it away. If your right hand caused you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now, God willing, next week I'll have a chance to talk more specifically about how we can fight this issue of lust. This is a great danger to the church. It's a danger in my life. If I didn't have tinder in my own heart and find the world around me ablaze, uh, I wouldn't worry so much. But I remember distinctly when Christy and I were engaged, and Christy remembers this too, I know, uh, we found out that my pastor, a godly man by all other accounts, uh, had, he had left the church to take a, an important ministry position with a parachurch group, had committed adultery. I was shocked. I felt like I'd been shot. It was so, so difficult for me to hear. And it wasn't so much, I didn't know him personally, but you know, he was a great preacher and a, and a great leader. Uh, one of the largest evangelical churches in New England. I think maybe the largest uh, and he had fallen in this way. And I looked at Christy and I thought, you know, and we both said aloud, I, I, you know, what's going to protect us from ourselves? That was the question on my mind. I knew I wasn't going to commit adultery that day. At least I was pretty sure of it. Okay. I was walking with the Lord and, you know, uh, you know, trying to be godly, etc. But what am I going to do about 15 and 20 years from now and 30 years from now? How can I continue? Um, how can I look ahead? And, and that's what put the fear of the sin in me. But you know, God has shown me that his grace is sufficient to conquer each one of these temptations. And you make it the same way that Jesus said, one day at a time. Each day has enough evil of its own, he says. It's the devil that says, oh, you really? For the next 30 years, you're going to be perfectly sexually pure. That's not what you're commanded to do. He's commanding you to be pure right now. Right now, right here. And if God has brought you here tonight and you know that there's sin in your life, you know that there's issues of, of lust, sexual immorality, is there a relationship that's starting to form, maybe with somebody at work or a neighbor, uh, maybe somebody that is a Christian you're counseling with or ministering to them and getting a little too close, uh, how about your imaginations, the, the thoughts of your heart? What's going on inside here? It matters a great deal to God. Don't, don't leave this building without confessing, turning away from that sin resolving to walk in newness of life by the power of the Spirit. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.